Hi, and welcome to High Time, Time for, for True Crime. Crime. I'm Khadija. And I'm Catherine. And today we'll be discussing The Pharmacist. If you like what you hear, please follow us. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you like to listen to your podcasts. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at High Time for True Crime. Also, you can DM us or email us at HighTimeForTrueCrime at gmail.com. Thanks for the support, and I think it's time for us to get into the true crime. Also, sorry for ruining your day. I'm Dan Schneider, and I'm a pharmacist. I can almost remember every piece of my life. I have hundreds of hours from wiretapping phone conversations about what happened to me. My son was murdered, buying crack. The police have the attitude that these kids maybe got what they deserved. But I was determined to get the killer off the street. And if the police wasn't going to do it, I was going to do it. At first, my mission was to get justice for my son. But then I started noticing in the drugstore a lot of kids around my son's age coming in with high-powered opiate prescriptions for Oxycontin. Word on the street was it's just heroin and a pill. There was a certain doctor using her license to virtually decimate my community. I couldn't look the other way. There was a rumor that there was a pharmacist making a lot of noise, and that's not good for business. He had questions all the time. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? There were boxes and boxes of materials. All right, Dan, we're not being recorded again, are we? No. The DA and FBI was neither incompetent or in cahoots. I just knew that people were making money. If there ever was a smoking gun, that was it. We sounded crazy. I think they waving a gun at me. Well, be God, and hopefully anybody else who hears this, because I'm most of it. But I saw this opiate epidemic in its infancy. I'm not going to let this drug continue to kill. So we're going to be discussing the pharmacist. I am so happy that we're not discussing don't fuck with cats anymore. Yeah, no real content <laughs> warnings or trigger warnings here. I mean, it is a little messed up, but it's nowhere near. Yeah, nowhere near as devastating as don't fuck with cats. Yeah, um, I mean, it is kind of devastating, but minus the animal cruelty and all the whatnot. other crazy stuff. But yeah, we're going to be talking uh, The Pharmacist. I think this one was a lot easier to follow. It was a pretty, it was a great documentary. I All think, thanks to yeah. my man, Dan. Oh yeah, Netflix definitely did a good job in making sure that we got the full picture. Um, Dan was going to make sure we got a good job of getting the full picture either way, oh, yeah. with, with or without Netflix. Yeah, Dan is definitely a true hero on many levels. I think um, he should start his own podcast, honestly. He could just play his tapes. Yeah, honestly. Here's welcome to your tape. Um, don't support that show, but yeah. anyways. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so um, I'm excited to talk about The Pharmacist today, and uh, you ready to get into this one? Yes. So, uh, a little bit of background. Um, this does take place in New Orleans. Specifically, well, not New Orleans, yeah. but Louisiana, but Specifically the, the St. Bernard Parish near the Lower Ninth Ward and, yes. of course, New Orleans. Yes. So, the armpit of the South. All of New Orleans East, basically. That's what they call that area. Yeah. So... Uh, where we're going to start off today, we're going to talk about the family. Now, this is the... Schneider family. Yes. And part of the Schneider family, we have Dan the man, who is the father. His name is also Danny. Um, we also have his wife, and her name is Annie. <laughs> they are the cutest high school sweethearts I think I've ever seen. Their oh, yeah. wedding pictures are so cute. They were adorable, for sure. He was a football star. She was not a cheerleader, but she supported him. And, yeah, there was more football in this, and I was just like, ugh. Aaron Hernandez flashbacks. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then we have their two wonderful children. We have Danny Jr., basically. Yeah. And then we also have Christy with a K. So... Our story starts off in St. Bernard Parish. St. Bernard Parish is pretty much the furthest east uh, from New Orleans. So it goes New Orleans, Ninth Ward, then St. Bernard Parish. Um, that's where the family resides. They are pretty much like an all-American yeah. family. I mean, like, so they did all by the book, it seems like. They're high school sweethearts. Yeah. They're married young. Dan becomes a pharmacist in 1975. To yeah, to support They have family. Danny a year later in 1976. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was maybe four years later, they had Christmas. Yeah, they pretty much 
settled in St. Bernard Parish. They started their family and yeah. they were seeing off and uh, the footage of Christmas at the Schneider house. I mean, that was like a Hallmark movie and a half. Yeah. They had a 17 foot tall Christmas yeah. tree. It's ridiculous. And you get to see their house uh, that they lived in. They lived in that house the, pretty much the whole entire time they've been married. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful home. You see their family vacations where they go literally all over the country. Um, they compared themselves to the Griswolds. Yeah. yeah the Griswolds. Which I was like, yeah, that's pretty fucking accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there's no Dan other... Dan doesn't seem quite as wacky as Mark no. Griswold, but he's definitely got some charm. <laughs> yeah, he has a big, big personality. Um, I like in the beginning of the documentary where the Netflix producers are talking to him, and he's like, well, uh, I think I can uh, tell this story if I just uh, stay on track, and they're just like, okay. But he's def- he's a big personality. He's like an all-American dad, which you pretty much expect, just like full of stories, full of fun, full of jokes. But yeah, you get to see a lot of footage of the family, their family vacations, how they grew up. You get to see them being at the house with their family, and you know, everyone in the neighborhood and all the people that interact with them are just like they were good people. Mm-hmm. Nothing really too sketchy going on. No underlying am- abuse or anything like that. So um, I was really happy to hear all of that. Yeah. So we're going to move on into. It's around April thirteenth of nineteen ninety nine. Is yes. kind of where things pick up. Um, we hear a little bit of backstory about Danny and kind of how he is and mm-hmm. who he is aspiring to be. We learn that he's going to community college. Yes. He works at Pizza Hut. He's got his new little red Ford Ranger that he's paid yes. for. Yeah, little girlfriend. He's a little bit of a hippie type, which you don't yeah. necessarily expect from Louisiana. And he just seems. It's funny to me because Dan calls him a peace nick, which I've never heard before. I know no. beatnik is a word, so yeah. I think Dan just kind of. Made up that word that Probably. stuck out to me. Um, but yeah, Danny was just like an easygoing kid. Like he wasn't, he was creative. He was, he wrote some poetry. He just didn't really, he graduated from high school and he didn't really but know just what barely. to do. He barely graduated, yeah. which they, they bring that up later and they say that he was struggling, but nobody really noticed yeah. because he just was kind of like gliding yeah. on. I mean, whenever I graduated high school, I mean, it was kind of hard for a lot of people. I mean, but I knew what I wanted to do, of course. Yes, but a lot of people don't really know what they want to do. So you kind of, you kind of, you know, expect them to have a little bit of, like, rebellion or something, because they're just in a crisis at that point, mm-hmm. usually at that age. But he didn't know what he wanted to do. He was traveling back and forth to go see his girlfriend, who lived yeah. in Mississippi. She was doing a full ride scholarship at a, a Mississippi Uni- State University or something like that. So it was kind of like a parallel. She was doing off doing her own thing, and he didn't really have too much going on. He was trying mm-hmm. to figure out what he wanted to do, but at least he was working and going to community college yeah. and trying to make something. So that's why it wasn't so out of the ordinary on the night of April the 13th, 1999, when Danny just tells his parents and Christy, hey, I'm going to go study with some friends, be yeah. back, until we later find out what really happened on that night. Yes. So that night, um, around 2 o'clock in the morning, the Schneider family gets a loud knock on the door, and nobody just comes knocking on the door at 2 o'clock in the morning unless it's the police. Mm-hmm. And if the police come knocking at your door, then something serious has definitely happened. Yeah. Um, at that point, the police proceed to tell the Schneider family that they found their son Danny's red Ford pickup truck in the lower Ninth Ward. Mm-hmm. Now... They are a Caucasian family, and the Lower Ninth Ward is predominantly African-American. So most of the time, from what we learn from this documentary, if a white person comes to the Lower Ninth Ward, they're looking for crack cocaine or Mm -hmm. some other type of drug. They're not there to see their friend. At 2 o'clock in the morning, we got a loud knock on the door. I woke Danny up and said, somebody's knocking on the door. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Who can that be, you know? There were two policemen at the front door, and they came in and said, look, we'd like to come in and discuss something with you. They said they found our son in the ninth ward in New Orleans. And I said, no, my son's upstairs sleeping. I don't know what you're talking about. And I just ran to his room to see if he was sleeping. I said, Okay, well, we'll go get dressed. I guess we'll get dressed. And we got into the sheriff's car. We going, where did y'all say his truck was at? And it's in the ninth ward. We said, we want to pass where you said his truck was at before you go any further. After the police pretty much 
tell the Snyders that they found Danny's red truck in the lower ninth ward. This is when they ask them, they're like, okay, well, we have to take you to the hospital. That's where Danny is. They don't realize what's going on fully at this point. Yeah, but... Annie says that she was so mindful. And she was like, no, there's no way he's sleeping upstairs right now. Yeah. And they had to go check the room. And obviously he, was there, he wasn't was there. there. And, you know, they asked the police, can you take us by where Danny's car was found just so we can, you know, I guess get... I don't Did know. I guess, context, they just, yeah. I guess I just wanted to see if it was really him, if that was really his truck, and if they had the right person. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the police take them by the truck, and that's when everything... They immediately knew. Yeah, reality yeah. literally hit them in the face, and that's when Dan realized this wasn't just, like, a carjacking or anything. Like, this was a drug deal gone wrong. Gone wrong. Specifically a crack deal gone wrong. Yes. But it's crazy that Dan, even after seeing this and knowing what happened, didn't want to believe that... No. It had been a murder. That it had oh, been... Yeah. An, he just thought it was, like, a freak accident mm-hmm. or something. And, of course, the police, they don't tell you... I mean... Well, they don't really know They don't really... Point, yeah, they, sure. they know something... They know he's dead at this point. But yeah. the family doesn't realize that until they're like, oh, yeah, he's at the hospital, but, like, no, like, he's not alive. He's in the morgue at He's the in the morgue. You guys need to identify his body. And that's when the whole family just literally, collectively, just breaks. Uh, this was the hardest part. One of the hardest parts for me is when Dan starts playing all... Like, this man requires... Recorded everything. everything. Dan is the king of receipts. Yeah. And he starts recording moments of them grieving. And one of the specifics that got me was him talking about the family thinking about committing suicide as a family. Yeah, which is crazy. Absolutely to hear. insane. I mean, I could I I know I you're in a rough spot, but if he said me, myself, and my wife decided to yeah. commit suicide, but, like... Christy was and young. And Christy, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, Christy was younger was younger than Danny by, by like, a couple a, years. two or three years. Yeah. So, just the fact that they were considering committing suicide together, that shows you how close of a family... And, I mean, if you watch this documentary, you can see all the family videos. They did everything together. Yeah. But now they're being hit with the fact that their son had been murdered. He also had a problem with crack cocaine that they had no clue about. They realized he had behavioral issues, but they didn't think that, oh, it was drugs. And, I mean, Dan also says that he knew that Danny smoked weed. Yeah. But... He never knew it escalated to anything And else. the next level, of course, being that Dan is a pharmacist, so yeah. he is responsible for making sure that this kind of situation doesn't happen to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And less alone think it would happen in his house. Yeah. But, I mean, for this, it was a giant, it was a huge reality check for Dan to see that this can happen to anyone. We gave our son the best life. I mean, at that point, most people that are in Dan's position think that people that are addicted to drugs come from hardship or they're just poor or they just don't have any self-control or anything. They don't have a good life. These are the kind of people that don't realize that their kids are going to the lower ninth ward to commit crimes. Most of the people in the lower ninth ward aren't going all the way to their neighborhood to commit the crimes. I mean, and I mean, at that point he, I mean, him being a pharmacist, he doesn't really see at that point, he wasn't seeing too much of, like, addiction thrown in his face. Because most people that come to him actually have medical issues. They're yeah. coming for their diabetes medication or they're coming diabetes. for their asthma pump or something. Yeah, or, like, I went to the pharmacy yesterday to pick yeah. up some amoxicillin and eye drops for my toddler. Yeah, so. like, it's not anything that he would think would be, you know, too serious. He doesn't really put two and two together. But he realizes that addiction has no bounds. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what uh, economic level you're at. It doesn't matter who you are. You can become addicted. Which, one of the things that I have a lot of praise for this documentary is, yes, it highlights the opioid crisis, but it also actually discusses, validates, and credits the crack ep- epidemic as well. St. Bernard Parish was right down the street from the lower ninth ward. One day I took Danny to the lower ninth ward, which was in the city, and we drove and saw the house that my family came from. My family moved out of the ninth ward during the era which you might call a white flight. It was racial. As a child growing up in the city, a lot of African Americans start buying homes in the lower ninth ward and white Americans moved into St. Bernard, and it's like two different worlds. At that time, it was real in-your-face type of racism. All the time, they'll call you a nigger, or they'll write it on a car, or they'll write it on something. That's what we grew up with, you know. It was basically called a city into a city. 
play softball on the levee. We would have little penny parties, waistline parties, as they would say, a wing dang doodle. When everybody would get together and just basically have fun. But in the 80s, the neighborhood had it had totally changed. So to contextualize this a little bit more, um, we have to talk about the gentrification of the area and how things kind of got split up and the deep racial tensions that were happening at the time. Yes. So Dan um, grew up in the Lower Ninth Ward. The Lower Ninth Ward, where that was at the time a lot of Caucasian families were living there and everything was good. It was like beautiful neighborhood, all that stuff. But when African American people started moving into that area, of course, racial tensions white were happening. Yeah, white flight, they white the white people were just like, we don't want to live with they didn't say black people, but they no, said... No, they did not. And their signs also did not say black people. No. It's um, a word that I cannot definitely, well not say. I don't, I don't like that word particularly. No. I don't want to really say it. No, I'd rather it not be in our podcast um, for multiple I know reasons. I'm black. I, I can say it, but I don't care to say it. It's yeah. not... But you get the word. They say pretty much the N-word with the hard, hard R. Yeah. Um, you see in the video, not in the video, in the documentary, of people holding signs saying N-word, go home, or we don't want this N-word in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's when the white flight happened. All the white people in the Ninth Ward moved to St. Bernard Parish. And with that, they took the economy, they took every single business, they took all the schools, they took everything with them. Mm -hmm. And that's how the Lower Ninth Ward became this poor and impoverished It became the inner city of the area. Yeah. And I mean, at the time, as soon as the white people left, it didn't immediately become that way. I mean, we talk, we meet Shane, we meet Jeffrey, um, and we meet Pastor Terrence Reed. And those people, those are people that grew up in the Ninth Ward. Um, Shane and the pastor, they grew up when pretty much white flight happened. They Mm -hmm. grew up after that. And they were just like, you know, it was a normal neighborhood. It was just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of African-American people having a good time. We had cookouts. We had the waistline parties. Yeah. She was like, it was a wing dang doodle. A wing dang doodle. And I was like, excuse me. I was like, Shane, what are you talking <laughs> I about? I learned some words. I yeah. learned some words this documentary. But, you know, she was just like, it was It was everything that the white people wanted. We wanted to just have a community where everyone got along, got along with their neighbors, were able to interact with each other and form a community setting. But, of course, the white people weren't. They didn't, they didn't want black people to be integrated with them. Mm-hmm. They didn't want them to have the same happiness that they had because... There are a multitude of reasons. Yeah, there's a whole. But they're none, was, none of them are valid. Podcast. Yeah, none of them are valid, of course. Yeah. So we see what happens to the ninth ward, and you know the black people are there making the best of it. They're having their community and doing what you know what they can. But then the eighties rolls around. Uh, fuck you, Ronald Reagan. Oh yes, um, the crack epidemic. They didn't call it a crack epidemic at the time because. Because they no, didn't it, care. just like with AIDS, it was a marginalized group and nobody cared until guess what? Your nice little white fellows were involved in it and suddenly being affected by it because we all know how they really are. But oh, I yeah. digress. It was pretty much the turn of the community. That's when everything went downhill. Mm-hmm. That's when you started seeing a multitude of people becoming addicted, dying in the streets. And just people that you would never expect in a million years. Oh yeah. It was just, it was crazy. And I mean, there were also people that were white that were coming from St. Bernard Parish to the ninth ward to buy crack cocaine and use it. But of course, nobody really talked about that. And I mean, we have to talk about like the difference between Coke and crack. Now for me, this documentary was really hard because all this happened during the eighties. Now I'm sure most of you have seen Wolf of Wall Street Mm -hmm. and you praise that whole entire movie. I've actually never seen all of it. Oh, it's <laughs> it's a wild ride. Um, but, you know, it's just crazy to see that people are just like, oh, Wolf of Wall Street, they were doing quaaludes and cocaine all the time and, like, a bunch of drugs, but people are like, oh, like, they're cool, they're, like, players or whatever. But then you see African-American people in the community being devastated by crack cocaine, and crack cocaine and coke are the same thing. The only thing yeah. that's different is crack cocaine is diluted with baking soda or whatever other products and whatnot. That and they it's put in rock it. form. Yeah, yeah, it is in rock form. It's literally just a diluted version of coke. So they're all doing the same drugs. The people on Wall Street and the people that are in the street and the Lower Ninth Ward are doing the same things to their bodies and they're becoming addicted. Yeah. But just because their skin color is different and just because they have different economic backgrounds, 
one they're is seen, praised or yeah. joked about and the other oh yeah the other is, ones are seen as like as great like cool guys like you know they're doing they're their successful thing people. they're successful and all that stuff you know they're scamming the fuck out of people out of their yeah. money but the people that are doing crack cocaine on the streets they're thugs they're thieves they're this or they're the people that aren't even doing crack but are selling it just yeah. to make ends meet to people because obviously supply and demand that's yeah. how it works and I mean you have to understand what it's like to live in a neighborhood where there's nothing there are no jobs it's complete devastation you have to understand from the perspective of people that have been oppressed you have to mm-hmm. understand that because it wasn't easy in the 80s if you're seen all black people are seen as thieves thugs gangsters and what murderers people aren't going to want to hire you People aren't going to want to do business with you. People are not going to move their business into your neighborhood if it's been mm-hmm. run down because all the people took all the white people moved out of the neighborhood and took their money with it and their schools and their buildings and all that stuff. And people are looking down the same noses that they're snorting cocaine out of yeah. at you. And then you you're you're judging the people in the lower ninth ward. Meanwhile, your sons, your daughters, your husbands, your wives, your mothers, your fathers, all those people are going to the lower ninth ward to go get their fix of crack cocaine. Addiction knows no bounds. Mm-mm. And it was just baffling. It's just baffling to me how people talk about addiction nowadays because yeah. they don't see it and, as a health crisis. And they see it as- that's the whole thing about this documentary that oh, I yeah. do praise is highlighting the crack epidemic is all of the recent focus that we've seen on highlighting the opioid epidemic, especially with that intervention series that happened oh, here yes. in Georgia because we're in the triangle of opioids. Never do them, but I'm allergic to codeine, so I don't even think I could do an opioid. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just the the documentary does a very good job of making sure that they explain all perspectives and how these things have happened. Yeah, the inner workings and the intersectionality of addiction. Oh yeah, but getting back to the documentary. Yes. So after crack cocaine pretty much devastates the lower ninth ward and pretty much is creeping into St. Bernard Parish, you know, everybody's being addicted to drugs. Everybody is just kind of like losing people every single day in the streets. Mm-hmm. White kids are getting killed in the lower ninth ward for going to buy drugs there. And, you know, Danny even mentions, he was like, whenever I heard about that, you know, on the news, I was just like, well, those kids kind of deserved it because they had no business being out there. Yeah. Little did he know he would, you know, suffer the same fate as those parents that lost their kids Mm -hmm. that same way. (sighs) It's a lot, but it's definitely... This this documentary definitely talks about a lot of things that needed to be said. Yeah. So after all of this happens and the family finds out that Danny had been murdered in the Lower Ninth Ward over a bad crack cocaine deal, this is when Danny is pretty much jumping and hitting the streets to advocate for his son. Yeah, this man literally started going door-to-door in the lower ninth ward. I mean, it became an addiction in and of itself to figure out who, why, when, how the hell this happened to his son. Yes, and of course he's met with a lot of resistance from the police. Like we heard previously, the police was corrupt as fuck themselves, Mm -hmm. so you can only expect so much from them. Actually, it would probably help to include a clip here of some of the interactions that Dan had that he, of course, he was keeping them receipts. Recording. Oh, yes. Is this Sergeant Pankai? Yes, it is. How you doing? This is Dan Steiner. I knew I was going to have an uphill battle with the police. They kind of almost have the attitude that these kind of kids maybe got what they deserved. Once out of every 200 dope deals, somebody gets stupid and then somebody gets shot. Yeah, I know. But let me just tell you, my boy was not stupid. I'm telling you, he did not give the money to the guy for the guy up with the pistol and popped him. So as you can hear, the police didn't really care. They they were doing as much as they could 
I mean, quote unquote, doing as much as they could. But Dan was like, this is not enough. I'm doing all of the work. And they're just like, you're going to get yourself killed. You're doing too much. If you don't. They they basically were like, your son deserved it. Stop calling us. And if you don't stop calling us, we'll just close this case. And it'll just be. It'll It'll disappear. Yeah, it'll just disappear. Like, that will be the end of that. Which, of course, that's a surprise. It's not a super surprise to him. But for most people that are like behind you know back the blue and they're just like no police officer can really do wrong this just shows you how much corruption was in that police department on top of that a guy that is is trying to mourn his son and trying to get justice for his son is just trying to do as much as he can and the police are turning him away yeah and he's also done a lot of investigating i mean and just the sheer amount of people that he was able to access Mm -hmm. and get to talk to him that he went on like he went on the news he literally had flyers he was he started talking to young, um, like youth advocacy boards kind of things where he was just telling them the truths and like, Hey, it can happen to anyone. It happened to my son. Yeah. He was trying to get the word out, but also at the same time, educate people that this can happen to anyone. This could be your son. I mm-hmm. never thought it could be my son, but now this is where I am. And you see me hitting the streets now. Should he have gone to lower ninth north? <laughs> should he have gone to the lower ninth ward and knocked on doors uh, by himself? Maybe not. But I mean, kudos. I. But he was doing what he could. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was a brave man. Oh yeah, and this is where Dan. This is when Dan meets Pastor Terrence Reed. Um, he meets him because, of course, he was canvassing the ninth floor. That man had to be like, I have got to, got to intervene before we have another dead man in the street. Yeah. I mean, even the police told him like, uh, we're going to be scraping you up off the ground if you do not stop going down there. And I mean, he wasn't going down there with protection, of course. The way he meets uh, the pastor is, you know, he comes across him. He asks him for if he has any answers, if he knows anything about his son's murder. And the pastor's just like, well, I don't, but let me pray with you. And, you know, he started praying with the people in the congregation. And they were just, you know, nice enough to say, we will go with you while you go look for answers. Just for protection, just to, you know, maybe somebody will listen to you. Or maybe somebody will come up with answers if they see us with you. But, yeah. you know, hopefully no one will harm you. Just hopefully nobody will shoot you. Yeah, hopefully no one will shoot you and no one will bring harm to you. Yeah. So, you know, in that area, of course, a lot of those people hadn't been, haven't been treated nicely by the police. I mean, even Dan being a Caucasian man looking for his son's murderer, yeah. he wasn't treated nice by they the police. They didn't give a single fuck. They were all. like, sir, yeah. go, go sit down somewhere. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, in their... In the lower ninth ward, it's pretty, pretty much you don't talk to the cops. No, stitches get snitches. Snitches yeah. get stitches. Jesus Christ, <laughs> stitches get snitches. Yeah, I mean, if they go and decide to talk to the police, then that could put them for their family in danger. And I mean, yeah. also, I feel like a lot of people also just didn't know yeah. what happened. There are a lot of white people or a lot of white kids that were coming down there looking for crack cocaine or looking for other drugs that were getting murdered. So I'm sure they were just like, "Well, which one are you talking about?" Yeah. So at that point. Dan is going around with the pastor so he can go from place to place to talk to these people just to find out anything. And, you know, they're not really getting anywhere. They're not really getting any answers or anything. The police are dragging their feet. They're not really doing anything about it because they're just like, it's just another white kid that got killed. Yeah. And it just infuriated me because you see a lot of footage of the police just arresting people and arresting the addicts and stuff like that, but they aren't doing anything to get to the root of the issue of why these people are addicted to this crack cocaine, why they're seeking these things and why they can't stop. They're not treating it like it's a health problem. Yeah. It's a public health crisis. They're treating them like they're just criminals. Like that's it. And I'm like you, so you're telling me you're going to take them off the street, put them in jail for a few months or a few days. So they probably just a night if they're a little young white kid who's never been in trouble. They detox for a few days or whatever. And then They've probably, if they had a job, they done, they for sure lost their job. Mm-hmm. If they had any housing or whatever, they had rent to pay or whatever, they've definitely been evicted and all that shit. They're only just going to go back to where they came from. Or worse. Yes. And I mean, a lot of devastation definitely is a breeding ground for addiction because mm-hmm. people are looking for an outlet yeah, because of their pain. Yeah, it's definitely a perpetual cycle. Oh, yeah. And I was like, the police aren't doing anything to help this epidemic. They're just making it worse or trying to, quote-unquote, maintain it, but it's not doing anything at all. No. So... At this point, you know, Dan is just like, I'm I'm trying to do everything I can. I can't mourn my son's death. One night on May 14th, 1999, this is five weeks after Danny's murder, 
Dan gets a call saying that they know who the killer is. Mm -hmm. Um, The call that he receives is from the detective of the New Orleans homicide department, pretty much. And he says that there was a witness and the witness was Jeffrey. Um, Jeffrey's backstory is pretty tragic. Uh, he's like the oldest of 11 kids. Yes. His mom had a crack problem and it manifested in a terrible way. Oh yeah. When she, he decided that he was going to hide her paraphernalia, get rid of her drugs. Hopefully that would get her off the crack. Which it doesn't. And I'm sure many kids have tried to do this. I think he said he was like 11 when this happened. He was 11 years old. His mom literally called some people and they came to the house. They all grabbed a limb and like hoisted him up. Held him down. His mom turned the flame on the stove and held his hand over the flame until he was screaming. Yeah. And he... Definitely highlights that moment as being the turning point for him. He already was at a disadvantage, but yes. this was the thing that turned him to the street. At that point, I'm, figu- I'm pretty sure Jeffrey was just like, there's no use. Like, I'm just, I just might as well just submit. And that's what he did. He pretty much, he submitted. But we learned that Jeffrey uh, pretty much tells these detectives that he knows who the killer was. Um, he says that he knows who Danny is and he used to actually deal crack to Danny whenever mm-hmm. he would come down to the ninth ward. So he's familiar with him. So, I mean, they were able to corroborate a lot of things that happened at the murder scene and like the forensic, yeah, he the seems like a very it. reliable witness. Yeah, for sure. So, um, according to Jeffrey, this is what happened. So Jeffrey, of course, claims that the killer was a man named Scarface, um, of all names. What I know, in the Hollywood classics is this? Okay, we have to talk about street names. What would your street name be? Mm, it's Artie AC. That's it. Just AC. I don't know. My friends call me Kendrick, but that's like a whole nother situation right there. But if I was a roller derby girl, I would be AC Skater because Allison called me AC Slater because I'm Anna Catherine. But I'm not a roller derby girl, so. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I probably would go by like K Rock or something. K Rock. That sounds like a name from Trailer Park Boys because his name is J Rock. Yeah, <laughs> I love Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> I don't know. But, anyways, Scarface. Scarface is our alleged he's killer. suspect number one he's yeah so Scarface has um a very uh sketchy past colorful he, we'll call it a colorful past I wouldn't really want to say colorful but we'll go with colorful um, nobody come for me <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah he's definitely murdered people he's definitely robbed people he's definitely drug dealed he's definitely stolen drugs so yeah he's 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 things yeah um so of course with scarface's rap sheet the police are just like lock him up they literally but wait <laughs> they literally write a warrant and like go to his house like in that hour yeah but wait there's more when that they get man, to his house that man has been sitting in jail and was sitting in jail on april the 13th the night that danny was murdered so yeah. let's go back to square one jeffrey yeah so at that point Jeffrey's Jeffrey is looking no longer, a little unreliable. Yeah. Jeffrey is no longer a, a lead witness. Uh, the homicide department, they're just like, they go back to Dan and tell him literally the next day after they pretty much, because that night they call him, they go to Scarface's house, they find out Scarface was in jail, and then literally the next morning they you call Dan. You can tell this is before the internet because yes. they would have immediately known he was incarcerated because they would have looked him up yeah. by his street name and he would have been in the system as being an active inmate. Yes. And, I mean, I watch, you watched him 48 Hours. I've watched 48 Hours. They do that too. They, they like, make sure up. he wasn't in jail first. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so they call Dan the next morning and just like, sorry, false alarm. He wasn't really... Yeah. And I mean, it's a blow to him, but Dan is just like, not so fast. I want to talk to the witness that you had. Now, like we talked about before, it's pretty much snitches get stitches in there. You don't tell anybody nothing. You don't talk to the police. So they immediately, I don't know why or how, but they immediately give Dan all of Jeffrey's information. That would not happen in this day and age. No. And I was really surprised because I was like, I figured Jeffrey would probably be like, I don't want to be identified in this shit. Don't tell him my name. Scarface is going to kill yeah, me. Yeah, I'm surprised they talked to him at all. Like, Yeah. So, of course, Danny goes and he meets with Jeffrey. And, and Jeffrey says to Dan that 
Danny pretty much arrived around into the ninth ward around midnight and he was on his bike and he was riding up to Danny's truck because he had sold him to him before and he noticed his big red truck. And he said that by the time that he got to Danny, there was a guy that was already there, like ready to deal him his crack. And yeah. before he could even like, you know, get up to him to like say something, the guy pulled out his pistol and shot Danny. Now, this is, of course, corroborated by the police, like, just the way that um, Jeffrey pretty much explained how things happen and, you know, the forensics of the situation. They were just like, okay, that did happen, but there's a few things that are missing. Um, So Dan is just like, okay, well, if his story is a little bit corroborated or it's a little bit true, then he had to have been there. And, you know... At this point, it's getting eerie. Like, there's no denying that he was a witness, but... There's definitely questioning his involvement at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, his credibility is gone with the police, but Dan is just like, I believe him. I I want him to testify again. And one of the awfulest moments is like... Did you say awfulest? awfulest. Is awfulest a word? No, it's not. I'm just going to correct myself. One of the most painful moments, I think, or one of the things that really, like, drove it home to me is... There's literally a clip playing that Jeffrey's listening to of yeah. Dan like re- like praying for him and mm-hmm. hoping that he will testify and that in Dan's words that God will use him as the witness that they need yeah. like that kind of thing. And he's even saying like if the police turns on Jeffrey, I will tell the police. Yeah, like, he says it's not him. He says I'll make sure they quote don't nail Jeffrey on this one. Yeah, and he was like ensuring Jeffrey if something is to happen or to happen to you. I will make sure that you are protected. I will advocate for you. I just want to know what happened, who, what happened and to why, my son and why, why did this happen? because the police is not the police are not doing enough for me. So, you know, of course, Dan believes Jeffrey is the key to finding everything, you know, find out everything that happened to his son that night. So, he goes back to the DA's office and the DA are saying, "Okay, fine, we'll re-interview Jeffrey." They re-interview him. It didn't get any better. It literally got a ten times worse. He was contradicting the yeah. fuck out of himself. The DA straight up was like, Jeffrey Hall, not a reliable witness. Please don't bring him back yeah. here. We're not going to talk to him because everything he has to say, there's something going on. So, you know, at that point, Dan is just like, I know he's telling the truth. I know he knows something, but they want to re-interview him, so I don't know what to do. But then he comes up with a plan. Now at this point, he's pretty much like retired from not retired. He's pretty much taking a sabbatical (laughs) from his pharmacy job. And he's now um, focusing on his son's work or, you know, his son's work, his son's murder. And Dan has a lot of time on his hands. So, you know, he's in the ninth ward still going from house to house and going, talking to these people. And that's when he meets a retired drug dealer um he meets this, a lot of interesting people yeah he does this interaction was probably the most human interaction ever and it made me think if i was put in the situation what would i do as well so of course you know dan's talking to this retired drug dealer and he's just like you know giving him all the information giving him the details about his son's murder giving him details of when it happened where it happened and the drug, retired drug dealer is just like all right i will find out who did it yeah. And when it happened and like this is when it gets dark. Oh yeah. Darker than it has been. Because at this point, Danny is offered Yeah, he has a lot of power. He well basically the guy's like, I'll put a hit out on this person. You just let me know. Just let me know. I mean, I'm sure there would have been some compensation involved, whatever, but yeah. Danny's literally got the chance to take justice into his own hands. And he grapples with it for a while. And yeah. I really commend him for at least admitting that he grappled with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this man wants justice for his son, but he's just like, that's not the right way to do it. So he declines to put a hit out on the person that actually did murder his son. Um, After that, you know, it's... (laughs) At this point, months go by, and, you know, it's about five months after Danny's murder. They haven't made much progress at all, and, you know, they still haven't really been able to mourn the death of their son. Danny's still consuming himself and finding the truth. The family's kind of, you know, like going a little stir crazy as well because he won't chill out and let them mourn. He's constantly recording them, constantly hitting the streets. They're worried, you know, Annie, his wife is worried that he's going to get murdered down there. And at this point, not only are they, 
beyond being worried about him getting murdered down there, it's just his mental health and yes. his obsessive nature. It's become yes. an addiction in and of itself, and any kind of addiction is not healthy. So mm-hmm. Dan is he's moving completely beyond. Concerned. Yeah, he's unreasonable at this point, and reasonably so. But yeah. He's not. He's not. He doesn't have a proper outlet for his pain. I mean, of course, he wants to find justice, but he needs to take some time to breathe. He starts. He starts making people. phone calls. Yeah. just left and right. He grabs a phone book. <clears throat> for those of you that are too young to remember what a phone book is, <laughs> it has pretty much everybody in that area, that general area, has their phone number, their address, their name. Businesses, people, like everything. They had yellow pages, white pages, mm-hmm. probably blue pages. They had everything. So he hits the phone book and he's just calling everybody in that general vicinity of where his son was murdered to see if they know anything. I just imagined him calling a lot of older women that were like, quit playing on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a prank call? <laughs> yeah. So Put your mama on the line. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you definitely, we get to hear, of course, because Dan likes to record everything. Everything. We get to hear uh, a clip, or we get to hear some conversations that he had with the people. Pickup truck. Every night he would sit and call maybe 40 or 50 at a time or something. Some of them weren't very receptive. you get to hear a lot of people that are, are sympathizing with him because they've lost their son. Yeah, that one lady was yeah. like, my son, my 32-year-old son was murdered too. And she was like, that was my baby, my baby boy. And she's like, that's a pain I will never get over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are just like, you know, I can, I'll can, i pray for you. You know, I heard about it, but I don't know any details. Yeah. A lot of people are just kind of like, I don't know anything. Goodbye. Yeah. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure you got a lot of hang-ups because people are just like, who was this man calling my phone? And... Thankfully, you know, Dan had been doing this for like probably a few weeks or so. And thankfully, one night he called. This was absolutely insane. And oh, yeah. just a total miracle. Oh, yeah. And he calls and uh, someone picks up and we get to hear it. Hello. Yeah, Miss Maddie? Uh-huh. Well, you don't know me, but uh, my name's Dan Schneider. And my, my son was killed down the street from you on the corner of Dorothy and Forest Hall. Now, how they got my number? My heart started beating faster on that one. And I couldn't believe he had actually called the right house. You were the first one called 911. Uh-huh. And I just called them and told them someone had been shot. Right. In the red truck. I couldn't believe it. She said, I saw the whole thing. I saw it all. night of September 1st, 1999, um, Shane Madden pretty much answers the phone and she cannot believe that he called her directly, which she thinks that he like called her directly, but he did. She doesn't know that he's been calling around. So of course she's just like, Oh my God, like how did he find out it was me? How did he find out that like I was there? How does he know all these yeah. things? But it, it was just, because she had called Crime Stoppers twice, which 
you go, Shane. Yeah. So we learned from Shane that she was present the when Danny was murdered, and you know she was the first, the very first person to call Crime Stoppers once and twice, and she gave them the name of the killer. Like she literally was like, "This is who you need." Gave them like everything that they needed, but nothing happened. We're at the fifth. We're at the fifth month of uh, after Danny's murder. Like that's five whole months. They've had two calls from her saying, "Go check out this person," and I'm like, "What the fuck?" You couldn't have even like just taken a little casual, yeah, twenty minute venture. I'm confused as to what happened or who dropped the ball. But then it's explained to us, of course, later on. But. We then jump back to the night of the murder, April 13th, 1999, and we hear some things from Shane's perspective. On that night, I was standing in front of my mom's house, me and a guy friend. I looked to the corner because I saw headlights and I seen a little red truck. As the red truck passed us, I could see it was a white guy. I knew he was young. Your son had the window um, down. My son had the window down? Yeah. And then you seen, tell me what happened. Then he passed you up, drove down the street? I saw the dealer flag him down. And then it went back around the block and it came back again. And before they could get to Dolphin Street by the pole, they saw the car stop by the brake. Stopped on Dolphine and Falstall. I saw the dealer get out of the truck and run to the driver's side. The red truck jacked like he was trying to get away. And it was a pop. street was the truck had came to a halt it was like you know slanted like on the sidewalk from the street after that i just saw the shooter running and he drew the gun in the drain and you even you even seen his shirt now his white shirt mm-hmm. Shane, she literally saw everything. She had a front row seat to the witness of Dan's of Danny's murder. And, you know, she's going her inst- against her instinct with, you know, to talk to Dan because, of course, in that whole entire area, you don't talk or give information information to anybody that will lead to anyone's arrest. Because at that point, you're a snitch. You're going against code. You're whatever. But she decides to do it because in her heart she knows that the truth needs to be told. Mm -hmm. And she says that repeatedly. And (laughs) she literally (laughs) drops an atomic bomb, like an atomic truth bomb. And the episode doesn't even end there, which is so crazy to me. It just, like, gives me more anxiety the longer the episode goes after she drops this truth bomb. Because you know it's only going to get crazier. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She literally... Skullface wasn't the killer. Jeffrey was. It was Jeffrey. I can't be it. I mean, I, I'll be gone. Jeffrey was the killer. I mean, I'd heard the police said that it could have been Jeffrey, but I, you know, I did meet with Jeffrey. And I hate to say it, but I believe Jeffrey. <laughs> Fucking Jeffrey. God damn it, Jeffrey. We were all rooting for you. I'm we were rooting go. for you, Jeffrey. Uh, I I was so angry. Literally was like, bitch, what? Ex- ex- Jeffrey, what? it was 
Jeffrey. I was like, I wait. I was like, I don't think my ears are working properly because of the atomic bomb that you dropped on me. My ears are still ringing. Did you just say, excuse me, ma'am? Did you say Jeffrey? Jeffrey Hall, as in Jeffrey, who has been working with Dan and just leading him in fucking circles around the lower ninth ward, uh, promising him answers. I literally, after that, I was just like, Netflix put Jeffrey on the phone, put him <laughs> on the motherfucking screen. I just want to fucking talk for a second. Because what was the reason? What was the reason, Jeffrey? What was the reason? Reason. And he's sitting in front of us. He in in the documentary. He's We've sitting in front of us. We've seen him several multiple times. times. He's We've not in a jail cell. He's not in a jumpsuit. So I was like, everybody he's in this documentary. Fine. Jeffrey was looking a little cute. Catherine you thought had a crush. it too. You girl, you said he was looking cute too. We all were rooting for Jeffrey. Jeffrey, yeah. So, mm-hmm. anyway, of course, for the next like. 15 extra minutes of the documentary Jeffrey's not saying anything they're just showing his like reaction to Shane calling Dan and telling him all this information because Dan of course recorded all of his interactions with people regarding his son's um, murder so Jeffrey's listening to this he's not really making too many he's, make, he's not making eye contact with the camera uh-huh. of course well he's, they've literally read him for filth like they yeah. made this man I don't know if he'd listened to this audio before I doubt he has since it was probably all not just he's looking at his face yeah. to Dan praying for him mm-hmm. through all of this. I <sighs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey. He even Jeffrey. went to bat and said, if the police turn on you, I, I will, will make, make sure. sure you don't get nailed for this. Oh my god. I <sighs> But the police didn't turn on him. He no. turned on his he turned on Danny in the first yeah. place. He was the one. <sighs> what was the reason? Pretty much. <laughs> so we then talk to Shane again and she states that after Jeffrey murders Danny after she after he shoots him he comes back around on his bicycle and he says to her hey TT did you see what I did what I did look what I did TT because he's known her he's known her his whole entire life he is Shane's best friend's fucking son Shane's fucking best friend is Jeffrey's mother. So Jeffrey She's is like a nephew to her. A nephew he literally her calls her TT. Yeah, like she, they literally it and for me at that point, that's when I was like I fucking believe her a thousand percent because she, the fact that she was already had like The fact that she had already against, said yeah. something to Crime Stoppers in the, Twice! Yeah, twice. Twice! Just goes to show her credibility and her genuine Is way yeah, more than fucking Jeffrey. She's Jeffries. genuine and she is willing to go, she's literally willing to go against the, the way yes. that she was raised and her community in order to do what was right. And it was her best friend's son. Yeah. Her best friend's son. She literally had to go against every fiber of her being to tell Dan this. And it just came out of her. It, and she so, okay, this, to. this shook me, kind of. Yeah. Because Dan literally said, oh, you don't say. Yeah. Like, he couldn't even... Dan, okay, like, Dan literally had to unpack all of this, like... All of it. He didn't even. He didn't even believe Shane in the first place. He was just like, no, 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 no. That can't be right. Jeffrey, I've talked to Jeffrey. I've gone to Jeffrey's home and discussed this with him, and like met him. He went to the DA. None of this. None of this makes sense. And I'm trying to figure out how this. Like, I'm like, make it make sense. Make it make sense, Kadesha. Can you make it make sense? Can Jeffrey make it make sense? No, nobody's making nobody's it make sense making right it now. Sense. But then, of course, uh, they make it make sense in the Netflix documentary. Yes. <laughs> and I calmed down a little bit. Um, so we learned that Shane, when Shane called Crime Stoppers, they actually did look into Jeffrey. Yeah. And they questioned him. That's how Jeffrey was... Um, be, and that's how Jeffrey became the star witness, and that's how Dan was introduced to Jeffrey because they went and talked to him, and that's when Jeffrey was like, "Oh shit! Oh shit!" and gave yeah, him gave them that cockamamie story about Car- Scarface, which it was the real story, but he just replaced Scarface. You know, well, well, he just replaced himself with Scarface, Scarface because he knew Scarface was uh, dealing drugs, he was murdering people, he was robbing people, he was doing all kinds of things. He knew he had a long rap sheet, so of course, that's going to take all attention off of Jeffrey, who was, what, all of 13 years old, or six, 13 uh, years old when this he, happened. Yeah, he was like 16 by the time trial by the time, Yeah, and Scarface with this long-ass fucking rap sheet that can wrap around the goddamn block, of course, they're just like, it's him, we got him, lock him up. But of course, when that warrant came back, and they went and, after, you know, went and talked to him, and he was actually in jail. 
And had been. Jeffrey, what was the reason? That's what they're saying. That's what they're asking him. And Jeffrey continues to lie, and it makes no sense. So I'm still waiting for Netflix to put Jeffrey on the screen and let him say something, because... I need answers. And he, they, we never really got answers from Jeffrey, really. Not really. I mean, he was young. He kind of explains it. We'll get he to that does, part. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, so Danny's not, Dan's not really. He's having a hard time processing all yeah, of this. Because he trusted Jeffrey. Yeah. And you know, he's and I feel like at, at a certain extent. Yeah. He, I mean, Dan had just lost his son. So he had a, a, a soft spot in his heart for Jeffrey. I'm sure because Jeffrey was a young kid. He was on the other side. Yes. It turned out he was on the other side of the gun, but he was on the other side of the streets from his son and oh, yeah. they were kind of paralleled. Oh yeah. The whole and, family was paralleled. Jeffrey yeah. had, didn't have that family structure that the Schneiders had. He didn't get to go. He never been outside of New Orleans. He's never been outside of the Ninth Ward. He's never gone anywhere. He's never seen anything. Meanwhile, Danny and his family, they've seen everything. Yeah. And it's, you know, polar opposites. And, you know, Dan came into his life and was just like, I'm looking for my son. And, I mean, honestly, it just hurts more because Jeffrey took him on this wild ride. Yeah. Instead of just and saying, Danny, no, I won't talk Danny's to you. Danny's kind of got a heart or a soft spot in his heart yeah. for Jeffrey. And really, like, like we heard and him was praying yeah. for him. He didn't just want he, answers from him. He yeah. really cared about all the people that he interacted with through this whole entire story. He really cared for them. And you can, you'll see it in how he cared for Shane. And, and you know, you'll see also the steps that he took takes to try and take care of the community as well. Yeah. So at that point, you know, <laughs> at that point you're like, how is this episode still so going? going? Yeah. And but you know, wait, there's more. Yeah. There, there, <laughs> there is more. Um, you know, so at this point, Dan starts to believe Shane. He's just kind of like, okay, but you need to go to the police. This is where I get frustrated with Dan. Yeah, this is the point where Dan really starts getting selfish and yes. thinking about... He starts thinking too much about bodies that are already in the ground and endangering other people. people. Yeah, I was like... So he pretty much continues to reach out to Shane. Shane is just like, yes, I gave you the story, but I cannot go to the police right now. I just don't feel comfortable. Shane has kids. She has kids. She has a whole family. Her whole entire family lives in that area. from All the way from her grandparents to her mother sisters, brothers, everybody lives in that area. So if Shane were to go to police, go to the police, not only would she be in danger, but her kids are targets. Her whole entire family are targets to be murdered, to have something bad happen to them. Mm -hmm. Who knows what? And it's not even just an immediate threat from whoever killed Danny. It's anybody in the community that Shane knows their business. She is now a threat to them and their safety. So... If she's talked to the police once, they don't know what she will or won't tell them if they question her about whatever they have going on. So oh, yeah. there's a lot more going on here and in the inner workings of the community that Dan could not begin to understand. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, all he wants is to bring justice to his son. But, you know, we hear Dan pretty much calling Shane's house. Nikki, my family is jumping. They don't want y'all to call. My mama wants me to press charges. 
against your mother and your father. You understand? Mm-hmm. So the police is on their way soon to my house to press trespassing charges if they come across. So now what you think that's going to do? My sister, they calling my sister. You know, they getting in touch with everybody in my family. That's not fair. As long as they do that, I'm going to stay away, Kristen. That's on the real. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's like agony. It's like agony for us because it keeps dragging on. We just want it to be over with, you know? All right then. Well, let me do it at my own pace. We were so close to getting her, and I wanted her to come forward so bad. After Danny died, everything changed. <laughs> my life ended, too. It was Christy, the sister. I felt every pain that she felt. So the the thing that was the strongest to me and that they talk about is Christy lost her brother, but so did Shane. Shane's brother was also murdered. He was 12 years old, and they were very close, just like Danny and Christy. So Shane never got over that loss, even though there was a more of an age gap between Shane and her brother. Oh, yeah. And... After that, we hear that Christy and Shane shared a lot of conversations with each other, mm-hmm. and they just cried on the phone together yeah. a lot over the loss of a their A lot brothers. of times, Shane was more willing to talk to Christy just because yes. that bond they shared, because in that one clip, we hear her. She is sick of Danny and Annie's shit. Oh, yeah. She's like, stop playing on And Christy's like, look, I lost my brother. I just want... I want somebody to come forward and someone to talk to police. You know who the murderer is. Please help us. And also, Christy just wants somebody who understands, and Shane becomes that person for her. Oh, yeah, for sure. And at that point, that's when Shane tells the Schneider family that she wants to visit their home, that she wants to visit their home, and she wants to see Danny's bedroom. So one day, she goes to visit them, and... She, you know, Annie cooks a bunch of hors d'oeuvres, they have food, they, you know, talk and whatever, and she talks to Christy, she goes to see Danny's room, and they just cry together. They just, they just cry, and that whole meeting of the Schneider family just changes Shane's mind, because she just feels so bad for them, and she's also relating to them in ways that she never thought that she could, and she's just like, I'm the key to getting justice for their this family. I wasn't able to get justice for my brother, but if I could be that for someone else and do the right thing and tell the truth, it's a gift that I can give to this family. And, you know, also before she goes and talks to the police, she also goes and visits her dad in the hospital, and that's when he's... Wasn't it her grandfather? I thought it was her father. It's her. It's uh, either her grandfather or her father, and he's telling her, you know... The truth always comes out. Yeah, you're the you're the key that is you know. God loves the truth. I think yeah, it's like God loves saying. the truth, and she was like, you know, and I need to tell the truth. And he tells her, she's like, I don't think I'm strong enough to testify and say all these things in front of people. And he was like, You're my daughter. Just mm-hmm. in that, you're strong enough to do this. I, you have your family support behind you. You can do this. Do what your heart is telling you, and let the truth out. Because it'll make you, it'll make you feel a lot better, and it'll, it also be something good that you can give to this family. So on May twelfth, two thousand, that's the day after she met with the Snyder family. Shane goes and uh, goes to the police and tells them that Jeffrey was the murderer and not Scarface. And you know, that's when the documentary decides to jump back to Jeffrey mm-hmm. and Jeffrey finally opens his fucking mouth. But at that point I'm like, I don't want to fucking hear yeah. what you have Jeffrey, to say. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Unless it's Unless answers. It's answers. Yeah. I don't want to hear an excuses. Explanation. No excuses. Not even really an apology. Just oh, yeah. answers. But we don't get that. Oh, no, we get no, him no. saying, oh, wow, I can't, I couldn't believe that Shane turned on me. He was like, whenever he heard that Shane was testifying against him, he literally said, oh, wow, Shane, that's how you're going to do me? That's really what you're going to do? And literally, his family doesn't know shit about anything. I mean, some of them probably do know, but most of them are just like, he's innocent, he didn't do this, blah, 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 blah. They start Jeffrey. threatening. They start threatening Shane and her family. Mm-hmm. And Shane knew this was going to happen, but... She had to tell the truth in order for this family to get justice. And she knew who the killer was. And as much as it hurt her, it hurt her more to see the Schneider family suffer. Also, she talks about 
um, Jeffrey's mom, and I think she just knows how this cycle works, and she knows yeah. that she doesn't do something that Jeffrey's just going to be the next person to have ten kids that all end up doing things like this, or end up dead, on or the worse. Streets. Yeah, you know, at this point, there's just know. so many larger things at play other oh, than yeah. the loyalty of the community. Oh yeah, and you know, of course, they're getting threats and stuff. So Shane's family is put into witness protection. She hasn't even testified. Yet. No. she didn't say shit yet. She just told the police what happened, but she hasn't even publicly testified. No, so they get moved into um, <clears throat> witness protection, and this is in October, and. They've been there for a few months, and then one morning, Shane wakes up, and she goes outside, and all of the windows are busted out of her car, the tires are slashed, like her car is fucked up, and she finds in the driver's side seat a brick with a note attached that says, bitch, I found you. And that's where we end. That's the end of episode one. Um, my ears are still ringing from hearing yeah. that Jeffrey was the murderer, because I did not see that coming. No. At all. And especially, you know... Especially because like, he's a free man. Like, yeah. he's just in a he green was, shirt, backwards baseball hat. Yeah, he arms was Arms on the chilling. table, chilling. Yeah, he was chilling, and it was just... No emotion. It was a lot to see, and it just broke my heart to see Dan's reaction to Shane telling him Jeffrey was the killer. Because, I mean, Shane didn't even know that Dan even had any interactions with Jeffrey. No. And, I mean, I can only imagine that was, like, just... Just fueled in the fire. <laughs> Discombobulating. Yeah. To hear the boy that you went and visited and rode around the block with and he told you step by step how your son was murdered was the one that was that actually telling trigger. his fucking story of how he murdered your son. Absolutely mind-blowing. Yes. But this story gets wilder the further we get on, and so do the New Orleans accents. They get crazier yes. and thicker the longer we get into this docuseries. But that's the end of episode one. Again, um, if you like what you heard, please feel free to follow us. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and we're available on all social media at High Time for True Crime. We are still taking subs- uh, submissions. If you do have any scam stories you'd like to share with us, uh, please email us or dm us our email is hightimefortruecrime at gmail.com and uh yeah thanks for the support tune in next week for the pharmacist part two what's the name of the episode um oh fuck i think it's like god's something hold on it's right here in my notes episode two is titled a mission from God. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. So definitely check out our second episode. Also definitely check out our scam alert episode. And uh, thanks for listening. Sorry for ruining your day. <laughs>